As we begin this podcast, we do want to thank our veterans. Kerbinsville Alliance would like to say thank you for the time and the sacrifices you made for our country. We are surely in your debt, and we are surely thankful for all you have done. We hope that this message will be meaningful to you as it creates a sense of thankfulness in all our hearts for the generosity of God. Good morning. Welcome to Kerbinsville Alliance. We're good that you're here with you. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend some of our time this morning. And there is a Bible app event for this sermon. If you have a smartphone, you can uh, hop that baby up and you can click on the menu. You can look for an, an event near you and you can follow along. There's a lot of text on there that I think will be helpful for you today. This is the kind of sermon where you might need your thinking cap. And so you'll want to follow along as close as you can. Do you like the picture on the screen of the cup of coffee? Do you like that? Yeah, whenever I don't know what kind of background to put on my screen to meet my sermon, I just put coffee because coffee is always good. And if you don't like coffee, the Lord will correct you as well. And it'll, it'll be all good for all of us here, right? Yeah, yeah. I love sharing coffee. I'm that kind of guy that I'll say to my wife, oh, you should taste this coffee. She'll say it doesn't have cream. I'll say, yeah, but it's so good. Try it. You know, because I'm always trying to, to share coffee. It's a generous thing to do. I want to talk to you uh, as we begin about a woman whose name is Hetty Green. You might recognize her picture in the Guinness Book of World Records, the book that my Uncle Tommy gave to me. She is listed under a very odd heading. Hetty Green is listed under a heading that says, The World's Greatest Miser. I didn't know we were competing, right? I think maybe I could have won if I'd known it was a contest. But there she is, The World's Greatest Miser. Uh, Green was a Wall Street investor. And she made her money around the turn of the century, not the more recent one, but from the 1800s to the 1900s. She made it in the railroad. She made it in mining. She made it in real estate. She was so wealthy that New York City came to her more than once in times of of struggle and said, we need a loan. That's how much money this woman had. She was very successful, very wealthy, but not generous at all. In fact, she was extremely careful with her money. She had one black dress. And that's what she wore all the time. I'm not sure how she cleaned it. I don't know how she smelled when she went back and forth to the office. I I do know this. I read one source that said she didn't clean the entire dress because that would take more soap than she wanted to use. She would clean around the bottom where it got dirty along the streets, but the hem down there. But other than that, she didn't clean it regularly. In fact, Guinness says this about her. Guinness says that her son broke his leg. And Hetty Green this multi-multi-millionaire took him to a free clinic for the poor to receive treatment. And in delaying getting that treatment, that son, the sources say, lost his leg. A broken leg had to be cut off because of her miserliness. <laughs> if there's a contest for the world's greatest miser, Hetty wins. We'll give that to her. She, she's the one, right? <laughs> Do you know any misers? I mean, if I said to you, tell me some of the names of the misers you know, could you come up with any? As I was preparing this message, I thought, I'm not really sure I know any misers. I can't think of any. But then I thought, well, I'm sure I do know misers. Probably my problem is I can't recall them by name because being miserly is not something you're generally known for in a good sense, right? But I know people who are generous and generous people come to my mind quite regularly. For example, my Uncle Tommy, I wore his hat a short time ago. Restaurants love to see my Uncle Tommy coming. Do you know why? Because he tipped generously. I remember one time he laid down a tip and my mom, who was his sister, said, Tommy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm tipping the waitress. Yeah, that was my Uncle Tommy. He was that guy. 
When I was in college, Uncle Tommy would drive into town, and my buddies loved to see him come into town at the University of Pittsburgh. Here he came, and they said, I think your Uncle Tommy's out there. You know why they loved it? Because we're all going out to eat. Where do you want to go? And we would go to the steakhouse, you know? Ah, that was great. Uncle Tommy was the man. He, he did that. He would show up with gifts. The Guinness Book of World Records that I had, Uncle Tommy gave me that book, and, and he gave me that hat, and he would show up with tools and all kinds of stuff. And Uncle Tommy didn't have money. When he died, he lived in an apartment with his sister, my Aunt Frances, and his estate was in the singles of thousands of dollars, like six or $8,000 is all the money the man had in the world. But he gave generously. That idea of giving generously, whether Uncle Tommy understood this or not, he was reflecting the image of God because God is someone who gives generously. And today, I want to talk to you about the generosity of God. And I'd like to show it to you from Luke chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 14 and we're going to read along there. So if you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter four. If you have your smartphone going, let's read here about seven or eight verses, okay? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So when you read that text and you think, that's an interesting passage of scripture, what is that? You can almost say, this is kind of a mission statement of Jesus, kind of a purpose statement of his. Corporations have mission statements. Mahaffey Camp has a mission statement, a spiritual, a Christian center for spiritual growth. Churches have mission statements, knowing God and making him known or something like that. People can have mission statements too. In fact, if you have a life verse, that might be your mission statement. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's my mission statement. It's my life verse as well. In a sense, these words are Jesus' mission statement. Jesus, what is your mission here? What are you doing? Well, I'm glad you asked, Steve. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. That's his mission statement. Now, we're going to take this apart, and as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to use our thinking caps this morning and kind of work to understand the teaching that's behind this text. What is God trying to teach us about himself? What is he trying to teach us about life and about ministry? And first, there's some important theology here about Jesus. Scripture predicted a Savior, a Messiah. These words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, Those words, as soon as Jesus would begin reading them from the prophet Isaiah, any Jewish listener in the first century who had been around the synagogue for a while knew that this being from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years earlier was talking about the coming Messiah. It was predicting before Jesus was born in Bethlehem that there would be a savior. Those in the synagogue knew 
knew that what Jesus was reading was about the Messiah. And they became a little bit distressed by this. They liked what he said. They just didn't like that he was saying it, especially when he said this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that is why in the very next verse, verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed by the gracious words he came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask. Like, wait a minute. I don't know if this guy's the Messiah. Isn't this Joseph's son? They knew what Jesus was saying. Scripture predicted a Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. And that's probably the most basic teaching about this passage of Scripture. It's the take-home thing. Jesus is the Messiah. It's important theology. We consistently address this at Kerwinsville Alliance, that salvation is found through Christ. But there is also teaching in this passage about ministry in general. And really, it kind of brings up a question when you're looking at the text. And the question is, what is Jesus' focus here? What's Jesus mean when he says these things? What did the prophet Isaiah mean when he wrote these things? Is the focus on the visible world? Is he talking about doing something for those who are in poverty? Is he talking about releasing people from jails and prisons around Jerusalem? Is he talking about healing physical eyes or getting people glasses so they can see? Is he talking about overthrowing oppressive regimes? Is he, is he talking about anybody who's in debt getting out of debt? Is it mastering your money or financial peace university he's got here? What, is he talking about, is his focus on the visi- visible world? Or... Is Jesus focusing on the invisible spiritual world? Is he talking about helping those who are poor in spirit or the meek? Is he talking about releasing people from a captivity to sin? Is he talking about opening spiritual eyes? Is he talking about a spiritual reprieve for those who have sold themselves into spiritual debt? Which is Jesus talking about? Which is his focus? Now, if you want the answer to this question, and as you think about it, and the further you engage in your relationship with God, you'll eventually really want to answer this question. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about his role and our role as his followers? If you want to know the answer to that, it might be helpful to look at other places where Jesus talks about this kind of thing. And as it would be, Jesus actually reiterates this mission purpose at another point in his life. In Matthew chapter 11, You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from it. Let me give you the background of what's going on there, though. John the baptizer is in jail. Remember him. He's the one who said, prepare the way of the Lord. The kingdom of God is on its way. He's the one who pointed at Jesus and said, that's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, in Matthew chapter 11, John the baptizer is in trouble, and things aren't working out the way he anticipated In fact, he finds himself in prison. And there's got to be a little cognitive dissonance going on in his mind. Wait a minute. Jesus said in Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's here to set the captives free and empty the prisons. And here I am in prison. And so he sends a message by way of some of his followers to Jesus. And and the message says, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? Because frankly, I didn't really think the kingdom of God meant me rotting in a prison cell. Are you the one, Jesus, or should we be looking for someone else? Your heart really has to go out to John, doesn't it? He put everything he had on this. Now he's kind of wondering. And Jesus responds to him by reiterating the message that he'd given in Nazareth. 
Listen to his words and how they correspond with those words that he read from the scroll of Isaiah. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See, Jesus is kind of reiterating his purpose. And when you think about it, as you think about it, it really becomes apparent that Jesus is concerned about both the physical world, the physical visible world, and the spiritual invisible one. I mean, consider the ways that Jesus fulfills this mission in the physical world. He gives sight to the blind. (laughs) Ask Bartimaeus. I couldn't see. Now I can see. He heals the lame. Do you remember the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda? And he says, I can't get down into the water to get healed in time. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? There you go. And he heals him miraculously. A physical, physical world healing. He cleansed lepers. Last Sunday, we talked about the kindness of God in healing the 10 lepers. Do you remember that? A physical world reality where he did what he was called to do. He raised the dead. Your favorite story of raising the dead might be Lazarus, and that's a great one. My favorite is the widow of Nain's son, because my heart goes out to that widow. Who's going to take care of me? My son is dead, and Jesus interrupts the funeral procession and raises that boy from the dead. He's doing all this sort of thing. He's even proclaiming the good news to the poor everywhere he goes. So you can see that Jesus is concerned for the physical world, but hear this. He is also concerned regarding the spiritual world. He refers to the Pharisees, the evil religious leaders of his day, he refers to them as blind guides. And spiritually speaking, without Christ, we all have fuzzy vision. And he helps us see. And all of us walk with a limp, spiritually speaking. And he makes our paths straight. And all of us are unclean. And he purifies and provides cleansing. And all of us have experienced seasons and maybe even have some right now where we feel that we are in bondage to something. And Christ sets us free indeed. And all of us are poor, spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus makes us spiritually rich. And in all that, what I see is this generosity of Jesus that this mission statement from Isaiah shows his generosity. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He proclaims a life-giving, life-changing news to the poor. Think about the poor for a minute. So far as I know, Jesus never gave any money to poor people. He did not have a fuel fund like we have here among the churches in Kerbinsville Alliance. In fact, Jesus himself was poor. You remember at one point, Jesus himself says, foxes, they have dens. I don't even have a house. I have nowhere. The son of man, he says, has nowhere to lay his head. So what is he saying? What is his message of good news to the poor? And if you want to know what is the proclamation that you're giving to the poor, then maybe a place to look would be in Jesus' proclamation on the mount, which you probably know by the title Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to the poor. He he says in his very first sentence, it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, 
Listen to the very first sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is the good news to the poor? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm reading this book by a man named Ed Welch. It's called Shame Interrupted. I want to read a quote from it that Ed Welch has about this passage of Scripture where Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a little bit lengthy, but remember, I told you you'd need your your thinking caps today, okay? So listen as I read this to you. You can't miss the word poor in what Jesus said. It may be the first time in history that honor and poverty appear together. He wants us to think about the poor who are the original congregants for this sermon. And then with the poor in view, Jesus wants us to go deeper. The poor in spirit are those who live with a keen awareness that they must depend on God for everything, both spiritual and physical needs. Then Welch goes on and he says, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains the poor in spirit with nothing language. It means the complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means the consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is to be poor in spirit. And then Welch goes on to say, while nothingness before people feels like a curse, nothingness before God is something to which we aspire. It is a blessing. It is an honor. It is the way we're created to live. Jesus help me is one of the most honorable things you can say. The person who has something doesn't ask for help. The spiritually destitute person has nothing. And that is what God requires of us. Before God You have nothing you can offer him. All your good deeds mean nothing. We are, after all, unclean, and he is holy. The first thing God requires of you is nothing. Bring your contrition, your penance, your self-abasing, and you bring something. Just bring nothing. It is the hardest thing for humans to bring to the Lord. That's a powerful concept. A powerful concept. Those who are poor in spirit know they have nothing to bring to God. And the good news proclaims this. That's great because that's exactly what God is looking for. Your awareness that you have nothing. And when you come to God and say, here I am, I have nothing. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for you will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see how generous he is? How incredibly generous he is to give you everything and to ask for nothing. The generosity of God is beyond measure. We're going to look at another passage in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to see the second thing that Jesus speaks about doing here is setting prisoners free. Now, I've got to say, that doesn't mean he is freeing criminals so they can repeat their offenses. Jesus is not for unleashing violent offenders back onto society. That thought is just foolish. He's not suggesting that he's here to dismantle the criminal justice system. 
while he may have been making some statements about prisons in the first century, he's talking about something bigger than prison reform. Listen to his words back in chapter 4 of Luke and hear what Jesus is saying. He says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Another translation, the ESV says it this way. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Another translation, the New American Standard says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. What holds people captive? Human beings. We find ourselves in bondage to many, many different things. To addiction. In fact, that's probably the name of bondage. To depression. To a tendency to gossip. To an unending need for affirmation and have people love us and think we're great. We find ourselves in bondage to many things. I I told you we're going to look at Luke 13 because in this passage, Jesus frees a woman who is in bondage. And he heals her at the same time. It says in verse 10, On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. What an unusual condition brought on, according to Jesus, by an evil spirit. Because verse 12 says, When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately... She straightened up and praised God. I think I'd be praising God too if I had been that long in that position. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. If that sounds crazy to you, then you don't understand politics, right? Verse 15, the Lord answered, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath... Untie your donkey, untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out and give it water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? You hear him? Here's what I want you to hear. This woman whom Satan had kept bound for 18 years, she was in bondage. And Jesus set her free from that. Jesus proclaims freedom for her. He proclaims freedom for all the captives. Can you see how generous Jesus is being here? It's kind of amazing how generous God is being here. He knows the synagogue ruler is going to be angry. He knows the politics involved. He knows there'll be repercussion. But Jesus does that which he is anointed to do. He sets prisoners free. The generosity of God is beyond measure. Jesus opens spiritual eyes and gives sight to the blind as well. In the New Testament, Jesus heals those who are physically blind more than once, and he gives sight to those who are spiritually blind. He does so with his disciples. Jesus says something to his followers that always just makes me want to smile. You know, he tells them something and they say, what did you mean by that? When you said that thing over there, what was that about? And and the New International Version translates it this way. Are you so dull? (laughs) Right? Wow, if you're a school teacher, wouldn't you just love to say that sometimes, Robbie? Yeah. Are you so dull, you know? Don't do that, though. There might be a board meeting about that if you do that, right? You would never say that, right? Jesus can say that, though, and he does. He says, don't you get this? Are you that blind? And I don't think Jesus says, are you so dull to put them down? I think Jesus says that to say, your eyes are closed. Here, let me open them for you. 
In fact, there's a lot of ink in the New Testament where Jesus is recounting something, some spiritual realities, because they're too blind to see them for themselves. And do you see God's generosity in that? Opening our eyes to what we otherwise couldn't see. There's that old prayer, that old hymn rather, that says, open my eyes that I may see. And that is a prayer that none of us would have thought to pray, but God answered it anyway. Did you hear that? God answered as a prayer before you even think to pray it. He opened your eyes, and he's opening your eyes. Even now, as you're listening to this message, he's still opening our eyes. How gracious, how generous God is to us. You see it in Jesus as he relieves the oppressed. It says in verse 18, back in the Luke 4 passage, that he sets the oppressed free. Now, the oppressed are different than prisoners. To be oppressed means to be held down. The glass ceiling is an oppressive ceiling. It means to be kept, you can't get any higher than this. Imagine a sumo wrestler sitting on top of you. Ah, I'm being oppressed here. This guy's on top of me. I can't get up, right? The word in both the Greek and Luke and the Hebrew and Isaiah is rich in meaning. It can mean to crush, like a sumo wrestler would do. It can mean to squish beneath. It can mean even to to break into pieces. One resource says that it can refer to a broken body or a broken heart equally. I know you felt it, right? Have you lost a loved one? Did you feel brokenhearted? Like you couldn't breathe when you got the news? Did you feel trapped between a heavy weight that made a sumo wrestler look like a feather? Did you feel that? That's the kind of thing that Jesus is addressing. Or what about when you see your children as they're moving into adulthood, making bad choices? How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel crushed, broken to pieces, short of breath? That's what Jesus is delivering from. Or what about when you're wrongly accused and you know you didn't do this, but you're so helpless? Do you feel stuck like there's this heavy burden on top of you wanting to destroy you? That is the kind of oppression that Jesus is talking about removing. He came to relieve the oppressed. And you can see the generosity of God in him doing that. The Bible speaks of it again and again in Psalm 34, 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saved those, and there's that word again, who are crushed in spirit. He comes to earth, God in the flesh. He comes to you personally to deliver the message of the gospel to you. And he comes to you spiritually and is close to you when you feel crushed and heals your soul. He relieves oppression. Wow, the generosity of God is just beyond measure. You see it in Jesus, through whom God gives you favor. He shows favor to those who don't show favor to him. So in Jewish society, there was this neat law. The the law was that every 15 years, those who had maybe sold themselves to someone else to be a laborer, like, okay, I really need some financial help. I will be your laborer if you'll get me out of this financial bind. Those who had sold themselves that way or those who had sold some of their possessions because, you know, I need some financial help here. Here, take my wheelbarrow, take this, take that, take the other thing. Those people that sold that at 15 year mark, they got that back. It was called a year of jubilee. It was kind of like an economic reset in that society. You can be sure that Jesus is speaking about this when he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the word favor is very important for us to look at in some detail. The word he uses here, and I don't usually give you Greek words, but here's a freebie, okay? It's dektos. The word dektos. It's a Greek word that means acceptable or having favor. 
Shows up five times in the New Testament, and two of them are right in this passage. One of them is in verse 19, where Jesus says, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's dektos. That's the word that's used there. Five verses later, in verse 24, when they're kind of upset that he's saying he's the Messiah, they don't really like to think about Joseph's son as a Messiah, give me a break. Jesus says in verse 24, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own town. And the word dektos is there, no prophet is favored in his own town. I'm here to give you, to tell you, the Lord's favor is on you. Yeah, we don't really favor you though, Jesus. Sorry. Isn't that kind of crazy? I, I, I see Jesus here to proclaim God's acceptance of us and we don't accept him. He came unto his own, John writes in John 1.11, but his own received him not. Human beings were good at rejecting God, but uh, he still is generous toward us. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Can you see the amazing generosity of God? He's just so generous to us. He puts my Uncle Tommy to shame. (laughs) What is your reaction to the generosity of God? I mean, how do you respond to that? I can tell you my reaction to my Uncle Tommy. He's long since passed away. But I think about him a lot. (laughs) I loved it when Uncle Tommy came to visit. Whether I was a little boy, you know, six, eight, ten years old, or whether I was an 18-year-old, if I knew Uncle Tommy was driving down from Buffalo, to come to the farm over in Jefferson County. I made sure that I was there, that I had time to be with him. I responded to his generosity by making him a priority. Because you know when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, there are other things that are priorities in your life. You got a car, maybe a girlfriend, whatever you got. And Uncle Tommy's coming? Yeah, Uncle Tommy's coming. I'm gonna be there. Because I responded to his generosity with love. I didn't have to force myself to do it. It was natural. When I saw his generosity, it just happened. I responded to his generosity by kind of becoming generous myself. It drives my wife crazy. I'll be eating something. This week it was Doritos. I did that for my son-in-law. He can't get Doritos where he lives, so I try to eat a bag of them a month. Just vicarious Dorito eating, right? My wife doesn't like Doritos. I don't know what's wrong with her, you know? So I walk over to her and I hold the bag saying, try some of these. They're so wonderful. And I know, she's like, we've been married three decades, man, and you don't get it. I don't like Doritos. And she says, no, I don't care for them. I don't like them. But I just want to share them. That's part Uncle Tommy and me, right? It's generosity. I probably tried to share things with you. People come to my house. If I know you play a guitar, I put my guitar in your hand. Right, Drew? Have I done that to you? I just walk over here. Here's my Gibson Jubilee 12-string guitar. It's really, really old, and I trust you. Have a good time with it. Because I, I just have that generosity. That comes from people like Uncle Tommy in my life. So number one, I responded to Uncle Tommy by making him a priority and loving him. Number two, I responded to Uncle Tommy by imitating him. 
I was not obligated to do that. Uncle Tommy never called, never sent a mail, there wasn't texting, never sent mail or anything and said, I'm coming down to visit on this day, make sure Steve is around. He never said, I really want to make sure Steve's there. Steve, I'm here, I, you give me your time. Never did that. He didn't have to. Because he was generous, and my heart saw that. I have spent the last 25 minutes telling you how generous God is. Has your heart seen that? You respond by saying, you're a priority in my life, God. You respond by saying, I love how generous you are to me, God, and I love you in return. You respond by saying, I'm going to be generous too, because I want to be like you, God. You see how wonderfully generous God is. I'm going to pray that you and I could respond to his generosity appropriately. Would you stand with me as we pray? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, you are indeed generous that you so love the world that you gave, that's generosity, your only son, that whoever trusts in him would not perish but have life everlasting. Jesus, you are so generous. Greater love has no one in this than he lay down his life for a friend. Those are your words, Jesus. You're speaking of yourself in generously giving your life on our behalf. We respect veterans who put their life on the line. We respect you for giving your life intentionally for us. May we respond to your generosity with hearts of love, with hearts that say thank you, with hearts that make you a priority with hearts that choose to live generously among others. Not asking you to make us like Uncle Tommy. It's bigger than that. I'm asking you to make us like you, Jesus. Thankful for your generosity and generous in return. 